Please turn in your Bibles now for our sermon to the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul's letter that we call 2 Corinthians. We began looking at this letter last Sunday afternoon. I gave a kind of introduction and overview and background of the letter. This morning we will be reading chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God's word says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing as we hear his word. God, we come before you this morning desiring to know you more, desiring to worship you. We come believing that your word is true, that it comes from you, that it is without error, and we desire it more than gold, even much fine gold. More than anything else in this world, Lord, we desire to know what you have revealed to us and to know your will for our lives. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would work through the word. We pray, Lord, that it would be useful for us today for instruction, for correction, and for training whatever area that we need, that you might thoroughly equip us for the good works that you have for us. So may you bless your word as it has been read, as we come now to preach it, and as we hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you might be wondering, uh, how are we going to spend 45 minutes on two of these verses, and especially these two verses, the opening of a letter, the, the greeting in a letter. How much can you really dig out of that? Well, if you really stop and think about it, you can learn a lot about a letter by the way that it begins, by the way that it ends, the format of the letter, the style of how a letter is written. So, I, I think that most adults uh, these days do not write letters. Maybe you write cards or notes that you send off. But kids, maybe some of you kids, you like to write letters? Uh, you can nod your head if you write letters. Anybody? Uh, okay, well, uh, letter writing is fun. It, it's good. And you kids probably, I, I think, have been taught how to write a letter, even if you don't write it so much. How does a letter usually begin? Uh, and in our style, we usually say, dear so-and-so, whoever you're writing to, dear Tom. And then you write the things that you want to write. And then how do you end the letter? You end the letter by saying, sincerely, Drew, your name, or something like that. All the best, or love, 
and then you put your name. So you start with who you're writing to, you finish with the person writing. But you can switch all that up based on what you want to say in your letter. And you can make a point by how you begin or how you close. So here's some examples in history. Uh, A man named Ludwig van Beethoven, the composer, he wrote a letter to someone and he uh, signed it at the end. He just said L. And then he said, ever mine, ever thine, ever ours. So uh, you can probably figure out what that letter was about. It was a love letter. And all you have to know is how he ended it. Ever mine, ever thine, ever ours. So you might switch things up if you're writing a love letter. Here's another letter from history. Victoria. This is the beginning. Victoria, by the grace of God, Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, etc., etc., etc. That's my favorite part. Uh, To the President of the United States of America, sendeth greetings. So that was a letter that the Queen of England wrote to President Martin Van Buren in the 1800s when King Edward had died and she just became queen. And so you see that that letter is very official. Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And you see all that just by the way she starts the letter. And then there's one more example. There are kind of uh, rushed off letters. And we have an example of Martin Luther King Jr. Where he didn't write who, he, who was receiving the letter. We don't know who got the letter. He didn't have any name. He just wrote three sentences. And then said, best, wish, best wishes, Martin Luther King Jr. And so you can see from that letter, that was not a a formal letter from a queen or a king. That was not a love letter. It was just a a note that he wanted to rush off. And how do we know all that? How do we know all these things? Just from a few words, either from the beginning or the end of the letter. And so we can figure out a lot about the letter uh, called 2 Corinthians just by these first two verses, by how Paul starts. We notice that Paul's letter is full of theology. Uh, Theology literally is the study of God. And this opening, this greeting is full of God. He mentions the name God three times in those two verses. And he mentions the name Jesus two times. And in Greek, he has 41 words in those two verses. Nine of those words are either the name God or Jesus. God, Father, Lord, Jesus, all those things make up nine words out of the 41 total words that he writes. So already you can see that Paul is very God-centered and that this letter is going to be very God-centered because almost 25% of his greeting is about God. And we're going to see that the way that he opens this letter is full of Christian truth. It's a unique Christian way that Paul writes this letter. He takes the normal Greek way of writing and he switches things up because he wants to make certain points.
So as we go through these uh, two verses, uh, you see that there are three lines. Uh, There's the sender, there's the person receiving, and then there's the greeting. And so we're going to break that up by talking about the will of God, then the church of God, and then the gift of God. So let's start looking at these verses now by looking at the will of God. And that's the very first line of verse 1. He says again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So we notice the first thing is that he mentions himself first. He is the sender. And that's a typical way of writing a letter back then in, in the Greek style. You mention the sender first. Now that makes a lot more sense than the way that we write letters, doesn't it? Maybe you've gotten a letter before where there was no, uh, on, the, on the envelope, there was no return address. So you get this envelope, you don't know who it's from. So what's the first thing you do? You open it up, you get the letter, and you turn to the back page. Who's writing this letter? You want to know who's writing so that then you can go back to the beginning and you're going to interpret the letter based on who's writing it to you. That's how we write letters. That doesn't make much sense. But back then, they would start right away by telling you who is sending this. This is Paul. And he mentions that he is writing this letter with Timothy. Timothy is his colleague, co-worker, Timothy was probably with him at the very beginning when they went to Corinth to plant the church so the Corinthians would know Timothy. Uh, Many times in this letter, at the beginning especially, he uses the words we and us and our because he's writing this as him and Timothy. So like we're going to look next week about how uh, we felt the sentence of death upon us. That's him and Timothy. But then as we get to closer to the end of the letter, especially chapters 10 to 12, Paul is defending himself, remember, as an apostle. And so a lot of the, the eyes are going to increase. He says, I will boast in my weakness. He's talking about himself. He's not talking about him and Timothy. So Timothy is there. He's kind of in the background. He's part of the story. But this letter is really about Paul. It's sent by Paul. Now, Paul was previously known as Saul. You can read in the book of Acts about how he is named Saul. Sometimes people like to make a big deal about the fact that his name, he he changed from using Saul to using Paul. And some people would say, well, you know, it's like when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, or when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and that when God changed their names, it was a change of their identity and their calling. But, sorry to burst your bubble, it doesn't seem to be why Paul uses the word Paul, or the name Paul here. It's not that God changed his name from Saul to Paul. We don't see any Example or teaching on that in the Bible. It's that Paul is using his Greek name, the Greek form of the name Saul. My parents 
Lived in Latin America for over 35 years. My dad's name is Mark. But when he would introduce himself, he does not say, Hola, mi nombre es Mark. He says, Hola, mi nombre es Marcos. Marcos. He would go by Marcos. He didn't change his name. Uh, Marcos is the Spanish version of the name Mark. And so that's what you do when you go to another country. That makes sense. So Saul is on a mission to the Gentiles. He's not going to be speaking and writing in Greek and using a Hebrew name, Saul. He's going to use his name, Paul, because he's writing and speaking in Greek. So we know that this is Paul. And he calls himself there an apostle of Christ Jesus. What is an apostle? An apostle is an official messenger sent by Jesus Christ, appointed by him with the authority of Christ. They are the foundation of the church to be witnesses to the resurrection of Christ and to give us scriptures of the New Testament so that the church could be built on that foundation. There are people out there today who go around calling themselves apostles. There's even a group that would call themselves Reformed, Calvinistic, and they say that they believe that there are still apostles today. They think that people who go around planting churches or are missionaries, they have apostolic gifts today. Well, we believe the Bible is very clear that the apostles ceased with the death of of John. He was the last apostle probably to die. And so there were the first 12 who were appointed by Jesus, called by him to, to follow him for those three years of his ministry. And then we, we know that Judas was uh, destined to, to betray him, betray Jesus. So they needed to replace Judas. And in Acts chapter 1, you can read about how they replaced him with Matthias. And Matthias, they, 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 they chose him because he was a witness of the resurrection of Christ. He saw Christ appear to him bodily and because he had followed along with those other disciples that whole time. So Matthias was chosen, then you have 12 directly appointed by Christ, and then along comes Paul. You can read about Paul's story in Acts chapter 9, about how he was saved, and then when he was saved, he was at the same time called to be uh, an apostle, called to go on mission to the Gentiles. Jesus appeared, resurrected directly to Paul, except he wasn't walking on the earth. Jesus was in heaven, bodily in heaven. But Paul was a witness to the resurrected Christ who was seated at the Father's right hand, and Jesus spoke to him. And then in the story of Acts, he was sent on a mission to the Gentiles. And so Paul talks about himself, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, as someone who was untimely born out of all the apostles. He's like, he was born at the wrong time. And what he means by that is, is he also says in Galatians how God had set him apart from the womb. 
Galatians 1. And yet, he did not live that out for much of his life. He wasn't living that out, that beginning part of his life, as he was instead persecuting the church until God changed him and he became an apostle. So there are no apostles around today. There is no apostolic gift for today. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Now, you don't build and build and build and build a foundation. A foundation is to be at the bottom, at the beginning, and then you build on top of the foundation. So the church is being built up, not with more and more and more apostles, but with the 13, the 12 plus Paul, as the foundation of the church. So why does it matter? That Paul mentions here that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus? Well, Paul is telling us that his words have been commissioned by Christ. Paul is speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And that applies to us today. As we come and we hear the letter called 2 Corinthians, you need to understand that this is Jesus Christ's word directly to you. Jesus wants to speak to you. Jesus has some things to say to you and to us, to our church. How do we know that? Because he sovereignly appointed a man named Paul to be the messenger. And we don't need to listen to all these other people calling themselves apostles. We need to listen to the real apostle sent by Jesus Christ. So we come to this letter believing and expecting to hear the words that God has for us. Well, then Paul mentions that he is called by the will of God. He is an apostle by God's will. Why is that important? Well, hopefully you remember from last week the problem in Corinth with the pseudo-apostles. People claiming that they are apostles, but they are false ones. They are pretenders. They're fakes. They're the knockoff brand. Uh, When I was growing up, there would be many stores that would sell knockoffs and And they would not obey any copyright laws or trademark laws. And when I was a kid, I I really wanted Adidas shoes. And many of you know the Adidas logo is three white stripes. And so we'd go into these stores, and I got duped a few times. Uh, There would be these clothes or these shoes that had four white stripes. So I'd be excited thinking I got Adidas, but then you look and pay closer attention, you realize... This is not real Adidas. These are knockoffs. These are fakes. Well, there are fake apostles that may, at the beginning, look to be real. They they may look to be talking in God-like things, saying God talk. But if you stop and look close, you examine them, you realize these are not true messengers of God. 
And so the Corinthians were tempted to follow after these people who were bragging about themselves, uh, getting, trying to get them to follow them. And Paul says, no, I'm an apostle by the will of God. They are self-appointed. They commend themselves, but the Lord commends me. So in Jeremiah, God says, the prophets run ahead, but I did not send them. They prophesy, but I didn't tell them to prophesy. But if you would just listen to my words, stand in my counsel, then you prophesy. He says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a real prophet because he waits for the word of the Lord and then he preaches. The fake apostles, the fake prophets, they go on ahead and babble all these things that God has not revealed. So Paul is an apostle by the will of God. Well, the second thing that we see in this passage is the church of God. That is in line two of verse one. It says there again, to the church of God, that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So we got the sender, Paul and Timothy. And now we get the receiver, the recipient. Who is getting this letter? The church of God at Corinth and all the saints in Achaia. Now, many of you might have heard of William Tyndale. He was the first person to translate the Bible into English from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. Tyndale uh, caused a scandal when he came to this word that most Bibles translate as church. Uh, he decided that he did not want to translate that word, ecclesia, with the word church. Because in his day, church was referring to the Roman Catholic Church, or eventually, soon after that, where he was, it was the Church of England. And so he thought when people would read the word church, they would think of the Church of England or the Church of Rome. But that's not what the Bible says the church is. The church is not a hierarchy. The church is not this institution made by man. And so Tyndale translated that word as congregation. Congregation. And so if we were reading Tyndale's Bible, we would read to the congregation of God at Corinth. That's what the word church really means. A congregation of people or an assembly of people. In the days of the Greek world, they would have church, if you want to call it that. They would have ecclesias, where they would have a, a town meeting. All the men in the town would get together, and they would discuss the issues about the town, and they would vote on the issues of the town. That was called an ecclesia, an, an assembly, a congregation. That's what the church is. It's when people covenant, 
commit that they are going to get together for the worship of God and to follow what Christ has said. So by definition, a church is a group of people who get together. Maybe you've heard that people are saying that the new wave of the future is the metaverse. And Meta, the company, or Facebook, they're trying to create this thing called the metaverse, and they're trying to suck people in, and they're going to make a bunch of money off of it, I'm sure. And there are people who are preparing for that, saying, well, what we need is to start the meta church in the metaverse. So there is probably going to be, in a few years, the opportunity for you to go to this virtual reality, quote-unquote, church who needs to go to a real church with all those people who are messy and sinful and can do things that get on your nerves just go to church in your living room in a virtual reality we can just nip this one in the bud right now there will be no meta church with albany baptist i'm pretty confident i can say that because You can't have virtual reality church. Church, by definition, is real people who are really together in the same place, worshiping God. But he doesn't just say to the church of Corinth. Notice what he also says, to the church of God, the congregation of God. The people of God, the people that belong to God, the church that belongs to God. See, when the church gets together and they form as a church, then they have what Jesus calls the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They have authority from heaven. They are like an embassy that represents heaven on earth. You know, you can go to another country, you can go to an embassy, and let's say you go to France But the American embassy in France, you are technically on American soil. And you are under American laws, even though you are in France. And in the same way, a local church is the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Because according to Matthew 16 and Matthew 8, we have been, Matthew 18, we have been given those keys of the kingdom. Authority from Jesus himself to accomplish his will here on earth. And so we go by Jesus' rules. This is the church of Christ. It's not our church. It's not their church. It's not New York's church. It's the church of Christ. And so, for example, uh, New York has a definition of marriage that we're not going to follow because we don't go by the rules of the world, the rules of New York. We go by our own laws because this church belongs to God. We don't have authority to change his rules or to make up whatever we want. We represent God. And so that is a big responsibility for a congregation. You understand that when you vote in a member or when you remove a member through church discipline, or when you vote for an elder or for a deacon, what you are doing 
as you are saying, yes, I believe this is the will of Christ in heaven. And so we are uh, executing this on earth according to his laws. Why do we vote for pastors? If we were to ask an average Christian in America, why do you vote for a pastor? They'd say, well, because it's America and we vote for things. We vote for the leaders that we like. And so people say, well, I'll vote for him because I like him. Or I don't like him, so I won't vote for him. That's not why we vote. We vote because the congregation has the keys of the kingdom. The congregation is to seek the mind of God. And then together with the, the Holy Spirit, seeking the Holy Spirit's will, we discern what is the mind of God. You see this in uh, the London Confession, in chapter 26, paragraph 8. I was talking about the leaders of the church. It says, A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ are to be chosen and set apart by the church. You see that? The officers appointed by Christ are to be chosen by the church. And so the church is not just saying, what do we want? What do we like? The church is saying, who has Christ appointed? We need to make that decision. Christ appoints the leaders of the church, but they are set, up, set apart by the church. They are the church of God. And then he adds that they are saints there in verse 1. The church of God at Corinth with all the saints. Now here's another word that is often used in our day with different definitions from the Bible. In the Roman Catholic Church, a saint is a Christian who achieves a special status. They have to do a miracle and all these different things. And then they become saints. Saint Bonaventure, Saint Francis. We could go on and on. You've heard of these different saints. Even in our, our common way of talking, we can use words like this. Talk about somebody who's really nice. And you say... Man, she is just such a saint. She's a really nice lady. Well, that's not what the Bible means. Notice that the Bible talks about the Christians there as saints. Every Christian is a saint. Everyone who has been saved by Christ. Not just the really nice ones and not just the really holy ones, but every Christian is a saint. Now, why does the Bible call Christians saints? Well, a saint is someone who is set apart. Just as God is holy, God is set apart. He is unlike everything in creation. Christians are holy. We have already been set apart. We are set apart not from the world like God is, or not from creation like God is, but we are set apart from the world, from the unbelieving world. We are distinct people. We are unique people. So even though on the outside you might look like a normal person, the truth about you is that you are a saint. 
You are distinct. You are set apart. And so the call then upon us is to live that out. Live as someone who is different from the world around you. As a community, we are a church made of saints. And so we are to be set apart. We are to be different in the way that we live together. You know, even back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, why, he says, why is a brother suing another brother in the church? It's a different environment we're in here. You're all saints. Saints don't sue each other. We don't live like the world. We have a different kind of community. So you are called to be saints. So he is writing to the church of God in Corinth with all the saints in Achaia, which is the region that Corinth is in. So we've seen the will of God. We've seen the church of God. And then finally, we see the gift of God. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is the sender with Timothy. The church of God in Corinth and the saints have been receiving this letter. And now he starts his letter with the greeting. Hello, greetings to you. But remember how I said that you can change your style to make your point. And this is where we really see what Paul is doing. The normal way to say hello or to write a letter and say greetings is to use a Greek word, karain. And Paul changes that. And instead of saying karain, he uses the Greek word charis. Charis is the word for grace. And so on one hand, he's just saying hello. Karain, greetings. But he's Christianizing it, baptizing it. And he's saying charis. I don't want to just say hello to you. I want you to have grace. I want there to be grace upon you. He also takes the Hebrew greeting. If you go to Israel today and you want to say hello to somebody, you say shalom. Shalom. Shalom means peace. So you say hello and you say goodbye by saying shalom. He's writing here in Greek. He's not writing in Hebrew, but he's using the word peace to use, to, to hearken to the Hebrew word shalom, a greeting. He's the apostle to the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he says the, the Greek form of the greeting, karain or charis, grace to you. And the Hebrew form of the greeting, peace to you. So you see both of his hellos are infused with theology of God's grace. So what is grace? Well, grace is literally just a gift. Grace is a gift that someone might give to someone. When God gives us salvation, we call that grace because God is giving us a gift. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So what is the gift that he gives us? It is the redemption of Jesus Christ and his blood. It is this gift called justification. Justification is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God takes his perfect life and his perfect death. God takes the righteousness of Christ and he gives it to you. He takes uh, it out of an account and he places it in your account. You have a debt, you're in the red in your bank account, but there's a gift that is given to you. It is put into your account so that now, even though you and yourself are guilty, you are a sinner, you are corrupt and polluted, yet when God looks at that account, he does not see all the negative, but he sees there is righteousness there. This righteousness that actually is Christ's, but has been given to you. It's a gift. You receive that righteousness through faith, not through something that you do, not through something that you can earn. It can only be received. That's what faith is. Faith, as they say, is is the holding out of the empty hand. I'm not bringing things to God, I am coming to God, but I'm coming empty-handed to receive His grace. And many people will not receive the grace of Jesus Christ because they are too prideful to come with an empty hand. They think that they must bring something that they've done. But if you come with your closed hand, you cannot receive the grace that God offers to you through Jesus. So Paul wants you to know the grace of Jesus Christ, the gift of righteousness, the gift of justification. He also wants you to know peace from God. Peace means that we're also enemies of God. In ourselves, from the moment that we're born, we are corrupt and we are rebels against God. And so we have made ourselves enemies. God is holy. And so he casts out of his presence the sin that is in us. And yet the good news of the gospel is that the holy God is also the reconciling God. He is the God who himself made a way for peace between sinners and himself. Colossians 1 Verse 20, he has made peace by the blood of his cross. By the blood of Jesus' cross, we can have peace. Because our sin is not just corruption, it's not just disobedience, our sin is rebellion. And that punishment for rebellion, which is execution, was placed upon Jesus. Jesus took the death on the cross that we deserved so that we could then be at peace with God. 
And notice who this grace and peace come from. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is a work of the triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And specifically here, he mentions the Father and the Son, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. People call this the covenant of redemption that the Father and Son had even before the worlds began, that they decided that they were going to save the people of God. And even though there's one God, there are different Uh, aspects of salvation that are attributed to the different persons of the Trinity. We don't have time to get into the Holy Spirit's work here, but the Father's main role, his action, is election, to choose. And then the Son's role is to receive those whom God the Father has chosen and to make sure that they are saved by his work on the cross. Jesus talks about this in John 6:37. He says, "All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out." So there is a people that the Father has chosen and then given those people to the Son. And it's the role of the Son to not cast out those people, but to show compassion and to show grace to those people and to keep them. And how does he do that? It's by accomplishing the work of redemption, by dying on the cross for their sins. So before the foundations of the world, the Father chose you if you are one of his, if you believe in Christ. And before the foundations of the world, the Son agreed that he would not cast you out. That he would receive all that the Father would give to him. The Puritan John Flavel writes an imaginary conversation. that didn't happen as a conversation, but it's a good way of explaining this covenant between the Father and the Son. I'm going to read what he says. The father says, the father speaking, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, or it will satisfy itself in their eternal ruin. What shall be done for these souls? The son of God replies, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The father says, but my son, if you undertake this for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abasement, abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And so the son ends saying, 
Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. This is the Father's love. And this is the Son's grace for you who are his people, for the true church of God. So, as Paul wishes grace and peace upon you, the question is, do you know for yourself what this grace is? Do you have peace with God? Maybe you've heard a lot about grace and peace, but do you know grace? Have you experienced the gift of forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus? Have you experienced being made a friend, a child of God rather than his enemy? Have you come to God, calling on him to save you, recognizing your sin, going to him and giving your life up to him? To those of you who have, to the saints, has this grace and peace made a difference in your life? Does it make you love Christ more? Does it make you worship him more? Does it make you show more grace to others? Does it bring peace to you in your life? Not only peace within, but then peace as you live with others. Does it bring peace? Are we a a people, a church of grace and peace to one another because we have the God of grace and peace? Do you know this? Have you experienced it? Are you growing in it? John Owen says, if the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? The grace and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, will not make you delight in him? What else will grow in this grace, grow in this peace? So what kind of letter are we looking at here? What can you tell just by these first two verses? We see that it's a Christian letter. It's a God-centered, it's a grace-centered, it's a Christ-centered letter. It's an apostolic letter. Written by a very messenger of Jesus Christ himself. And it is written to you, the church. So, may you experience the blessing that Paul wants to bless you with. May we experience this ourselves as we hear these words. Grace to you and peace to you from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, we come to you 
As the hymn says, we wish that there were a thousand tongues to sing the wonders of your grace. Words cannot express your kindness and your faithfulness to us. We ask again for the forgiveness of our sins, for the knowledge of grace, and the experience of peace with you. Thank you for all your riches, the immeasurable love towards us that is in Christ Jesus. God, we pray that we, your church, your saints, we would live in light of it. We would live out the great calling to which you have called us. By your grace alone, help us to do this. And we pray all this through our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.